Welcome to the Tweet Couch Guitar Therapy Session, where we talk about all things guitar-related. My name is Dr. T, and I am not a licensed therapist, but I play one on a podcast. Today on the Tweet Couch, we are counseling on the Gibson Explorer. Largely described in the late 50s and 60s as an utter failure, the Gibson Explorer has become an iconic guitar that brings on a personality of its own. As part of the Modernistic series, the Gibson Explorer has caught the eye of Eric Clapton, Cheap Trick's Rick Nielsen, Metallica's James Hetfield, Hailstorm's Lizzie Hale, Leonard Skinner's Alan Collins, the Foo Fighters' Dave Grohl, and U2's The Edge. Many have played it, many have copied it, many have redefined it, but there is no denying the impact of a Gibson Explorer. But why was it a failure? Why did they re-release it? Was it really ahead of its time? And why were the first ones made of Karina and not mahogany like the rest of their catalog? Well, we will discuss this and more on this session of The Tweed Couch. As a reminder to everybody, we do have an Instagram called The Tweed Couch. All right, so if you are on Instagram and you would like to be a follower or a friend or whatever, then you can go to The Tweed Couch in Instagram. Also, we do have an email, so if you did want to email, you could. Um, the email is tweedcouchpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so that's if you just have any comments, anything you want to say, or maybe some suggestions of something that could get talked about, whether it be with Jason or whether it be with Nick or whether it be with Beth or whether I do it or maybe it's time I have my brother actually on this, whatever, that, that can be kind of fun. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Generally, when I end up doing these therapy sessions and I talk about the love of some kind of a guitar, I usually start with the history. Well, I'm going to turn that around. I'm actually going to talk about the guitar that I currently own first. I'm one of those kinds of people that I like to have certain things that remind me of a certain time in my life. So right now, we've got this pandemic, and I wanted a piece of gear that marked that time. So I bought a Gibson Explorer that was made, or at least signed off on, in June of 2020. It's a right-handed model, and it's in that color of antique natural. The body material, as well as the neck, is a mahogany, and it has this gloss nitrocellulose lacquer finish on it, which is actually quite nice. The neck is this slim taper, and it has a 24 and 3 quarter inch scale length, as you would expect. The fretboard is a 12 inch radius with rosewood, has medium jumbo frets, a nut thickness of about 1.69, and acrylic dot inlays. The finish on the hardware is all that chrome color, although the bridge is aluminum and the tailpiece is also aluminum. And then it has the mini Grover Rotomatics on it. Pickguard is a white, black, white. The speed knobs, they're, they're black. Part of the reason why I chose the Gibson Explorer was actually because of the pickups that were in it. And the neck pickup is a Burst Bucker 2 and the bridge pickup is a Burst Bucker 3. I like that it has two volumes but only one tone, and that's just kind of fun for me. Now, I was pretty sure that I wanted the Gibson Explorer because as I started thinking about 2020, I started thinking about how it was just weird. It was an odd duck. It was not the usual. It's not the norm, okay? And so because of that, 
I went, I want something that's a little odd, a little bit different. Sure, I could have picked a pedal. I could have picked a, a, a guitar amplifier. I could have picked a mug. You know, whatever it is, I could have done that. But to me, the Gibson Explorer kind of checked all the boxes of what I was looking for. I wanted something that was iconic. I wanted something I knew I wouldn't get rid of. I wanted something that was just jagged, but at the same time, smooth. I wanted something that when you look at it, it says one thing, but then when you play it, it says something else. And since I'm mostly a blues rock kind of player, when you look at this, some people automatically think, well, that's a metal guitar. But honestly, it's not. It is, it's just a versatile guitar. So I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. Now, yes, I could have also gotten like a Firebird. Okay, that's different looking and that's kind of an odd duck. Could have done a Flying V. Flying Vs are pretty cool. Maybe one day I'll get a Flying V, but really, The Flying V is symmetrical, and I didn't want symmetrical. I wanted something that was just asymmetrical. I wanted something that was jagged but yet smooth. And honestly, there's a number of things that I really appreciate about the Explorer. Like, for example, the access. There is so much access down on the lower part of the fretboard. If I want to play Leonard Skinner's Freebird and I want to solo like Alan Collins, I can do an impression of me playing Alan Collins' solo because I can't play it like Alan Collins, but I can I can attempt and I can feel like it because I have the Explorer and I can reach down there and play notes similar to Alan Collins, all right? So I've got that going for me. Also, I really like the string pull through the nut. I like the fact that the headstock is that hockey stick headstock because it allows for the strings to go evenly through the slots. Now, on a traditional Gibson headstock, of course, you've got that that splaying out of the tuning pegs, so it actually goes outward instead of just straight through the nut. So naturally, if you end up having binding in the D or the G string, you're going to have a tough time keeping it in tune. Of course, I've spent a lot of time with my Gibsons making sure that the nut is cut correctly, so that I don't have this problem of keeping it in tune. Now, there are other things that I really appreciate about the guitar, and one of them is the fact that it sounds different than my Les Paul. It sounds different than my SG. Of course, part of that is the burst buckers, and probably a lot of it has to do with the burst buckers. But then there is that part that does have to do with the way that the string pulls through. It also has to do with the fact that it is a flat body and that it's a big body. It is very resonant. And I like that a lot too. I've AB'd between all my guitars. And so, of course, you know, that's part of the fun is how does it sound different? And I find that these burst buckers in this Explorer are a little bit more growly. And they're also a little more mid-rangey. Like it's got a big old mid-range hump, which is pretty nice because it cuts through a band mix really easily. When I toss it on the neck pickup, It's really bassy and bluesy, but it's not so bassy that it's flubby. It it actually is very usable. It's one of the few times that I found myself being able to throw the selector switch into the neck position and do the solo, and it cuts through just as easy as if I would have tossed it on the bridge and tried to do the solo. Usually with humbucker guitars, I am not able to do this. It's usually single coils, like strats and stuff like that. So to have a a humbucker guitar that allows me to do that is actually kind of nice. 
So like I said, I've only owned this a few months and I actually really like the guitar and we'll see where it goes from here. Um, I've got to play it at church a few times. I've gotten to uh, hear how it sounds in a band mix and it does a good job. Now, we should probably move on to the history of things. So how did the Explorer really get started? Well, as I was doing my research and as I was kind of, you know, reflecting on what this podcast was going to be about, these questions came to my mind. Have you ever had a bad decision that turned out to be a good decision, but it was poor timing? Have you ever had an idea that failed you, but was successful when someone else tried it? Have you ever wished you had a time machine? Well, if you are Gibson, you probably said yes to all three of these questions at some point in your guitar company's lifespan. You see, Orville Gibson started in Kalamazoo, Michigan around 1849 making mostly mandolins. He incorporated in 1902 and then actually started selling his stocks publicly in 1903. From that time on, because of his health, he actually kept a distance from the company and took a pension for the rest of his life. They mainly made mandolin-style guitars, though they did venture into the archtop and the flat-top acoustics. In 1936, Gibson made the first electric Spanish guitar, and they called it the ES-150. In 1944, Gibson was bought by the Chicago Musical Instrument Company. In 1948, Ted McCarty joined and later became the president in 1950. Little did they understand that this decision to put Ted McCarty in charge of Gibson would end up being something that would change the music industry forever. The amount of iconic guitars that came out of Ted McCarty's leadership can only be described as unimaginable. After all, we're talking about a guy that during his tenure at Gibson, as president, came up with the Les Paul, Les Paul Custom, Les Paul Jr., SG, SG Custom, SG Jr., Firebird, Flying V, Modern, and the Explorer. And that's without mentioning that the PAF pickup came up during his time, as well as the Tunomatic Bridge. So in 1952, in response to Fender's success in making the solid body guitars of the Telecaster and the Stratocaster, which, by the way, solid body guitars were a design idea that Gibson executives scoffed at. But they ended up moving past their bias and getting some star power to create the Les Paul. Now naturally, there is more to that story, and you really should check out Season 1, Episode 13 of the Tweed Couch, which is named Les Paul Magic, if you want to know more about that. But otherwise, we should move on, because this is an explorer story. By 1957, the Tunomatic Bridge and humbucking pickups were staples in the Gibson line. In an effort to cut into Fender's profits and kill the stigma of being called, quote-unquote, the old people's guitar by other manufacturers, Gibson set out to create a modernistic series. These guitars would be displayed at the Summer NAMM show and included the Flying V, the Modern, and the Futura, which later got called the Explorer. But these guitars were just concepts at this point. In June of 1957, three patents were applied for, showing only the front and side views. 
No pickup selector, no pick guard, no fret markers, and no knob configuration. They were just three unique guitar designs with two pickups, 22 frets, and an atypical Gibson headstock. I have three guesses as to why these patents showed so little detail about how the guitar would function. I mean, maybe they worried about a leak, but I really doubt that. Well, maybe they wanted shock value, but I'm not sure how they'd get that out of a patent. So maybe really all they had was a half-baked idea, and they didn't know which one, two, or three of these guitars they would actually do. And I'm guessing that's more likely. So by the time Summer Nam in 1957, the Futura looked quite different than the Explorer that would end up in the catalog a year later. The Futura, shown at the time, looked exactly like the patent image, except dot inlays were present. Still had no knobs, no switches, no pick guard. And the upper bout of the guitar actually went to the 17th fret rather than the 21st. I'm pretty sure that this was just a dummy guitar and Gibson was looking for a market reaction. I have heard that they actually changed the name from Futura to the Explorer during that show, but I can't actually verify that. You know, I actually find the name Explorer way more fitting than Futura. Because after all, the whole purpose of this series was to see if Gibson could cut into that solid body market and take some of that profit share that Fender had started to run away with. In 1958, the Gibson Gazette featured the new modernistic guitars. I can only assume that the Futura and the Modern showed poorly at Summer Nam because only the redesigned Futura, now called the Explorer with the wider body waist, and the Flying V appeared in the Gibson publication. The Gazette read, Gibson looks to the future to find truly inspirational design ideas. Breathtaking results of such daring are the two new dynamic instruments pictured here. We introduce you to the new star of the Gibson line, the Explorer, designed as a companion instrument to the already famous Flying V. The impressive appearance of either modernistic guitar would be a real asset to the combo musician with a flair for showmanship. Engineering for both instruments is identical. They are dissimilar in shape only. Okay, hold on, pause. In shape only? Let's go from bottom to top. There's less wood on the V. The tone and the volume pots are in the pick guard on the V. The strings go through the body like a Telecaster on the V. The body attaches to the neck at the 22nd fret on the V. There are three tuners per side on the V. Now, of course, the original design of the Explorer, aka the Futura, had split headstock, okay? So there were three per side on those early renditions of the Explorer. But, first of all, that's not what they pictured in the Gazette. So it's not dissimilar on that. And second of all, even if they did have the old split asymmetrical V headstock on that Explorer, the tuners flared outward, not inward, like it did on the V. So I guess what I'm getting at is, dissimilar in shape only? Come on. But I digress. Back to the Gazette. Solid body construction of the finest Carina hardwood in natural limed finish. Again, hold on. What is Carina wood? Well, Carina wood is actually referred to as limba. It is native to Africa 
and is known to be very straight-grained and light in color. Its tonal characteristics are much like mahogany, but I tend to find them a little bit brighter and a little bit more in the high mid. These trees grow very large and they drain water pretty well. All of this would seem ideal, except for its ability to drain water causes the tree to dry out and split more easily. And this all happens before it gets harvested. So finding large sections is really hard to come by and is not easily sourced. When you're making something like the Explorer and the V, those are large pieces of wood. Now it does make sense to me that Gibson would want to use this type of wood simply because it is that light color. Keep in mind that guitars of the 50s often gravitated towards a natural wood finish color. These guitars were instruments, but to hobbyists, they were also furniture and art. The ES-335 TDN, the N stood for natural and actually cost more than the sunburst version of the ES-335. So natural was kind of in. It was the thing. All right, back to the Gazette. The extra narrow, fast action neck is of matching Carina with the Gibson adjustable truss rod. Rosewood fingerboard has attractive pearl inlays. Tunomatic bridge permits adjustment of action and individual string links for perfect intonation. I'd like to pause here and remind everyone that at this point, the Tunomatic bridge was new in 1953. So this is still considered new technology from Gibson. All right, back to the Gazette. The twin humbucking pickups are located for contrasting treble and bass response with separate volume controls and master tone controls. Okay, I would also like to add that the PAF humbucking pickup was relatively new as well, making its debut in 1956. Another thing worth mentioning was at the time, they didn't wind the pickups different. They just grabbed what was in the box and installed it. Sometimes they were out of phase, sometimes they were underwound, sometimes they were overwound, sometimes they were microphonic. It was actually the spacing and how close the pickup sat to the bridge that dictated the character of the pickup. Alright, last time, back to the Gazette. Equipped with toggle switch to activate either or both pickups, metal parts are gold-plated, individual machine heads with deluxe buttons. 22 fret scale length, dealers, try one of these new look instruments. Either is a surefire hit with the guitarist of today. But they weren't. At a price point of $247.50, plus an extra $75 for a case, it was too pricey and it was too weird looking. It had the fins of a 57 Chevy. It had the headstock of a hockey stick. The curves of a coffee table or a bow tie. In a time where most things were square or at least symmetrical as they were being rounded off, you had the two least symmetrical objects in an Explorer and a Modern. Now, I think it's probably important that we have some perspective. I mean, $247.50 plus $75 for a case doesn't seem like that much money today. But in 1958, that was a lot. If I go to my trusty inflation calculator, you will find that $247.50 in 1958, it equals $2,226.07 in 2020. 
plus you still need to get a case. So if we adjust that for inflation, then the cost for the case alone was $674.57. I don't know about you, but when the cost of a case is a third of the price of the guitar in which I bought, I'll probably just make my own case or get something else. So if you buy the guitar and the case, this brings this package deal to a grand total of $2,900.64. Now I get it. Some of you will have no problem spending three grand on a guitar if you know you're gonna love it. But let's also put into perspective what other guitars were going for at the time. In 1958, a Fender guitar case cost about $49.50. Let's assume that you would buy the case with the guitar. So a Stratocaster went for $324 with the case. That's $2,914.13 by today's inflation. A Telecaster went for $249 with the case. So that's about $2,239.56 now. A Jazzmaster went for $379 with the case. So that's $3,408.81 by today's inflation. So basically, an Explorer would cost the same amount as a Stratocaster. It would also cost more than a Telecaster, but it would cost less than a Jazzmaster. All I'm trying to say is that if I was watching the Ed Sullivan show in 1958, I would have seen Buddy Holly playing a Strat. And so if I'm going to spend my hard-earned money on something, I would look at that professional and go, ooh, I want to sound like him. I want to play like him. I want that guitar, not this pointy thing that looks like my coffee table. That, that's all I'm saying. But I also get what you're thinking. Those are all Fender guitars. They have bolt-on necks made by some guy in California. What about Gibson guitars during the time? Well, in 1958, a Les Paul went for $289.50 with the case, which was actually cheaper than a Stratocaster. By today's inflation, that's $2,603.83. A Les Paul Custom went for $417 with a case. So that's like $3,750.60 now. And an ES-335 TDN, which is in the natural finish, remember, that cost more than the sunburst finish, went for $329 with the case, which is $2,959.10 by today's standard. So basically, an Explorer cost about the same as an ES-335, more than a Les Paul Standard, and less than a Les Paul Custom. So I don't know about you, but I probably would not take a chance on these futuristic and modernistic guitars if I could get a Telecaster or a Les Paul Standard for cheaper. I'm also not sure that I would take a chance on an Explorer if I could get a Strat or an ES-335 at the exact same price. I mean, I own versions of all these guitars. I have a couple of Les Paul Classics. I have an ES-355. I have a custom-made S-style guitar. I have a couple of Telecasters. Ultimately, I just don't know that I would have been able to justify buying a Gibson Explorer in 1958. Now, of course, if I knew what it was going to become, I would have gladly bought 
a Gibson Explorer in 1958. But that's also assuming that I could even find one. You see, between 1958 and 1959, there were only 22 of these guitars that actually shipped and left the factory. By the end of 1959, Gibson had finally pulled the plug on the modernistic series. Both the Explorer and the Flying V were utter failures. When we look at the daybooks that go all the way up until June 31st of 1958, what we know is that no Explorers were made before then. So that means all the Explorers had to be made like July and on. So we believe the Explorer started production in July of 1958. Now you might be thinking, well, why do we believe that and we don't know that if they had daybooks? Well, that's because the daybooks from late 1958 actually went missing in the move from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Nashville, Tennessee. But we do end up having the end of year tallies. And so in 1958, the end of year tally for the Karina model guitar, which we're assuming is the Explorer, was 19. 19! That's all that went out in the last six months of 1958. So you go, well, what about 1959? Three. Only three showed on the shipping tallies. So what did they do with the rest of the parts? Well, in 62 and 63, explorers made their way out of the factory with leftover parts from the 58 and the 59, but the current parts of 62 and 63. Of course, they didn't have all the materials, so they made some adaptions like chrome instead of gold hardware, metal cap knobs instead of top hat knobs, some even had the white button tuners instead of the famous Clouston tulip tuners. For years, no one paid much attention to this product failure, but many music shops hung the guitars in their windows and used them as displays. Now, about 10 years after the Explorer's unveiling, companies began to make lawsuit guitars. Now, many of you are probably asking, what is a lawsuit guitar? Well, my definition of a lawsuit guitar is one where a lawsuit is filed due to some sort of a creation of a market confusion or due to a copyright infringement between the originator of the product and an unlicensed brand. Now, there have been a lot of examples of these types of copyrights, these types of lawsuit guitars. Of course, the more famous ones for the Explorer were like the Hamer and the Dean guitars. They made Vs and they made Explorers. But of course, you also have ones like Greco and Bernie and PRS and Tokai that all ended up making Les Paul style lawsuit guitars. But I would say probably the most egregious of all the manufacturers in making a lawsuit guitar has to be either ESP or Ibanez because they copied everyone. They had Strat style, they had Tele style, they had Les Paul style, they had Explorer style, they had V style, they had SG style, they had them all. 335 style, it did not matter. They were unapologetic until the lawsuit showed up. If you are looking for a way to help support the Tweed Couch and it costs no money to you, then check out our YouTube channel and become a subscriber. Also, you can tell someone about the podcast and share an episode with them. 
Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Let's hear from another sponsor. Are you looking for a party with a purpose? If you love music, if you love family-friendly, if you love camping, then you should look into LifeFest. LifeFest is one of the largest Christian music festivals in America and draws attendees from across the United States to worship together, deepen their faith, and strengthen relationships with family and friends. This three-day event features dozens of artists, engaging seminars, and much more. This year, in 2021, we have two festivals. Come join a party with a purpose in Oshkosh, Wisconsin on July 8th through 11th or on the Johnny Cash Hideaway Farm in Bon Agua, Tennessee on July 29th through 31st. I'll see you there. Well, now, thanks to these lawsuit guitars, there is a product demand for a Gibson Explorer once again. So in 1975, Gibson re-released the Explorer as a limited edition. They shipped 1,835 of these guitars. With a new era, though, came some changes. They offered it not just in natural finish, but also wine red, white, and black. They also had mahogany bodies instead of Carina, and Grover-style tuners. Of course, Gibson didn't really know what to do with this limited run, so early runs had the big 58 necks, and the later runs had these thin 60s necks. From 1979 to 1983, Gibson decided to expand their Explorer lineup by offering the E2 Explorer. These were classy-looking maple walnut maple bodies. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking about those 70s Gibsons that had pancake or sandwich bodies. But this was different. This was multiple laminates of wood, just like that, but it was done really well. Maple, walnut, maple. And they also had these, like, curves and cutaways into the guitar. They looked excellent. They looked classy. But they also made the regular Explorer at the same time which is incredibly important to understand. It wasn't a replacement of the product. It was actually just a difference, a change in it, a deluxe model, a custom model, if you will. In 1984, the designer series came, and the paint jobs began to get really crazy. They put on the British flag. They did laser striping. Actually, in 1985, they even decided to put a Roland synthesizer in the guitar with controls on the guitar and then match it up with a pedal. I mean, when you really start to think about it, this was the intent of the guitar all along. The modernistic series was designed to not only be the now, but the wave of the future. I mean, let's go back to the opening lines of the Gibson Gazette. Gibson looks to the future to find truly inspirational design ideas. Breathtaking results of such daring are the two new dynamic instruments pictured here. We introduce you to the new star of the Gibson line, the Explorer, designed as a companion instrument to the already famous Flying V. The impressive appearance of either modernistic guitar would be a real asset to the combo musician with a flair for showmanship. And a flair for showmanship it had. I mean, if you think about how poetic this really is, thank goodness that Ted McCarty lived to actually see the day that the Explorer was not an utter failure. It was a success. And it was actually a success 
in the future, which was the whole point of the guitar. Now, most of you think of the Explorer, you end up thinking about heavy metal and hard rock. You think of Metallica, James Hetfield. You think of Matthias Jabs from Scorpion. You think of Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm. You think of Jason Hook from Five Finger Death Punch. But I want you to remember that this actually started out as a rock and roll guitar. Eric Clapton loved playing these guitars. Rick Derringer played it with the McCoys. Rick Nielsen played it with Cheap Trick. We'll never be able to forget that The Edge played it with U2. And Dave Grohl played it with the Foo Fighters. But probably the most iconic of players that I remember was in Leonard Skinnerd, watching Alan Collins play that beautiful 1958 Gibson Explorer. So yes, pointy guitars, they are metal, they are heavy rock, but they are also blues, they are also classic rock, they are soul. The Gibson Explorer is an amazing, versatile guitar. So yes, the Explorer was designed as part of a modernistic series. It was designed to be for the future, something that is supposed to evolve with time to inspire the next generation or the next style of music. But unfortunately, we're creatures of habit. We don't like change. We like things the way they are supposed to be. And one of those things is the Explorer. So although many people will scoff at the idea of a 1985 synth explorer and an E2 series that has like curves and stuff like that, I believe that it is always important to make sure that even though we can have the original explorer, at least the look of the original explorer, we should also pay homage to the fact that the explorer is meant to also be different. It can have a maple top. It can have a curly maple top. It can have maple walnut maple. It could have a shape-shifting device. It could make your coffee in the morning. It can have built-in effects. It can have a bottle opener. It can walk your dog. It can have its own credit card. It can be registered to vote. It can have other explorer babies. It can collect social security. It can have diplomatic immunity. It does not matter because the Explorer is not only something from our past, but it is modern and it is the design of the future. Well, that concludes our session of the Tweed Couch Guitar Therapy Session. My name is Dr. T and remember, I am not a licensed therapist, but I have fun talking gear. Until next time.